gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So I know I've done a bunch of podcasts. I've done the solo regularly for the last three weeks, but I've been traveling so much and doing solos in strange places um, during strange times just doesn't feel normal and doing them here in my home office. It just feels like I'm back for the first time. So uh, the problem is also my wife came down with COVID. I don't think I have it. Or I didn't think I have it. I'm not super worried if I get it. She's feeling better this morning, but I'm starting to get the sniffles. And so I'm a little nervous just because I don't really have time um, to get it. Um, even though at this point I've had it a couple times, I've been vaccinated a couple times, I don't really worry about it being anything worse than a bad cold or anything. But I do not deal with colds well. I am a strong believer in the man-cold theory um, or the man-cold hypothesis, which is just simply that women suffer less from colds um, than men do. Um, I'm also open to the possibility that men are just bigger babies than women are. Um, so I can do this as an anti-feminist or a feminist thing or a non-feminist thing. Um, it is definitely true that women have backup systems for... Um, their immune systems that just make them different. It's one of the reasons why women suffer wildly disproportionately from autoimmune diseases. Um, it's because their system to for reproduction and all that is um, uh, just uh, it's next level compared to men. Men are the expendable drones and soldiers of evolutionary history, which is why there's so much more variation in men um, because we're so expendable. Um, but women are precious. And one of the consequences of this, I believe, is that uh, men suffer from colds, or at least I do worse, because I know lots of men who don't. Anyway, I don't think anybody actually cares about this conversation. I just uh, figured I would bring it up. Um, but it also might explain why I'm, I'm uh, seem might seem a little vision questy as I continue talking. I don't want to do too much travelogue stuff, but uh, I was in... Big chunk of Italy, spent a day or so, day or two in France, and then I went to Prague. Loved all of it. It's really great seeing my kid. It was really kind of poignant to see my kid on the one year anniversary of my mom passing. And thank you to everybody for your kind words about all that last week about how it's also weird and difficult at times, particularly sort of going into the holidays. We're trying to figure out things like Thanksgiving and stuff. And um, Thanksgiving was a big deal in Goldberg land. And, um, it's just different now for all the obvious reasons. But, uh, where was I going with all that? Oh, so one of the cool things I did was I visited Elba, you know, where Napoleon was exiled. And I'm ashamed to say it, you know, I've never, I've never read a good biography of Napoleon. I know I should read the Roberts one. Um, I'm kind of psyched about the movie. I carried that Napoleon biography around for long time and just didn't crack it forever. And then I lost it somewhere. I'm kind of fascinated by Napoleon. I wrote a good deal about Napoleon in my second underrated book because Napoleon was really in some ways the author of the idea of the sort of pejorative sense of ideology. You know, big part of tyranny cliches is arguing about 
what the proper understanding and role of ideology is. And he didn't coin the term that came from, oh, I should have looked this up before talking about this, but I didn't know I was going to talk about it. Um, one of the French philosophers, not, I don't think it was Say, but um, of Say's law guy, but one of those guys, ideology was originally just supposed to be like the study of ideas, like biology is the study of life stuff, life sciences, right? Bio, life, whatever. Um, geology is the study of earth stuff, right? Or as Sheldon says in um, Big Bang Theory, it's the stuff the dirt people do. And ideology or ideology was supposed to be the study of ideas. It's Napoleon who, you know, for a time played footsie with the free market classical liberal philosophers who once they were inconvenient to him because they started to criticize his statism, his authoritarianism, his command and control understanding of the economy, his attempt to sort of turn France into, you know, a sort of a garrison type state. Uh, he started attacking the philosophers as ideologists and, um, he used the, he changed the meaning of the term ideology to sort of mean someone who was transfixed, you know, uh, ensorcelled, uh, uh, bewitched by a set of ideas that were contrary to reality, right? So all of a sudden, an ideologue became someone who was unpragmatic, right? Who was idealistic, who was tethered to abstraction rather than to facts on the ground and what works and all of that kind of thing. And Napoleon saw himself as an, or at least liked to paint himself as an eminently practical person. Anyway, we can talk about that more later if you like. I mean, someone can send me an email. I don't know. Um, I, I find the history of ideology as a concept very interesting. And I think it plays out in our politics in all sorts of ways. You know, as some people might remember, I'm a huge foe of ideolo of philosophical pragmatism. I'm not an opponent of pragmatism with a small p, like being practical, um, being realistic. But pragmatism with the big P is a major philosophical Trojan horse um, that makes very similar arguments to this sort of Napoleon thing that like anybody who disagrees with me, an ideologue is a very common form of argument, right? It is the sort of, you know, it is, it's been, a, it's been a mainstay of, of progressivism for a very long time. It vexes me. But anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't want to do this uh, tangent. Um, why did I bring up Nepal? Oh, Elba. So Elba's really cool. It's really pretty. We did some e-bike stuff around the place, but we also went to Napoleon's palace, which was his, you know, essentially his prison, right? His cage, or at least what that's what I thought. But no, it turns out I, I did some reading up when we were going there, I did not, either I read this before and forgot, or I never knew, but I was surprised when I read that Napoleon was not a prisoner on Elba. He was basically given Elba to, in effect, rule over. He was the, I think not just the de facto, but the de jure sovereign of Elba. The rule was he could rule as he saw fit on Elba, but um, the British and French navies you know, patrolled the areas around Elba and he just wasn't allowed to leave, hence the exile stuff. And he had 400, he was allowed to take 400 troops with him. Um, and apparently he instituted some important reforms in the history of Elba local government. 
there's probably a couple PhDs, PhD theses out there on Napoleon's social reforms of Elba for the, you know, what I can't remember what it was. Was it 10 months, 14 months that he was there? Anyway, that was really interesting. Um, also, if someone has some clarity for this, shoot me an email. I, so I was under the impression, and I was talking recently with Kevin Williamson about this. Um, I was under the impression that the whole little corporal thing was a bit of a myth. You know, he wasn't that short. He was pretty normal for his time, like five, seven or something like that. And yet we saw what was purportedly his bed at the palace in, in Elba. And, um, it was tiny. Now, maybe he slept kind of sideways or sitting up or something, but it's, it was a tiny bed. I mean, I was surprised because I thought it was kind of a myth that he was short. Um, and no, five, seven's not tall today. And I don't think it was tall back then, but it wasn't short, short back then either. So I thought that was interesting. And, uh, anyway, we, I, we had a great time in Prague. I took, went back to this place, Ufleku, um, which means at the clock, U, the letter U, I believe just means at, um, or at the, um, Czech's a weird language, man. And, um, at Ufleku, I had been there 30 years ago and it's really funny, right? I don't think the menu has changed very much, if at all, in 30 years. But 30 years ago, the food was, I want to say it was so bad because there were some things that Czechs could do really well, basically pork, eh, pork, and um, and some goulash and knedlki, you know, the dumplings. Uh, those were good with the sort of a goulashy kind of gravy. That was good. But um, that was about it. So when you go to a restaurant that did that stuff well, you were really excited about it because there was just so few options. And um, so I remember the food being pretty good at Ufleku, um, which is, oh, I should back up. Ufleku is the oldest, essentially, beer hall in uh, Prague. It, it opened its doors in 1499 and I believe has run continuously since then. I'm sure there were some pauses during the, you know, unfortunate periods, but still, it's a pretty good run. And uh, they serve two kinds of beer, which they make on the premises, light and dark. And um, anyway, so it was kind of a mistake. I wanted to go there, but my daughter had two friends from home who were visiting. And I was like, oh, I'll take all you kids out to dinner and this famous old beer hall. And they were psyched about it and they were very polite about it. But one of them was a, a serious vegetarian. And the other one was, I don't know, just a normal, well-put-together girl and um, college girl who wasn't much interested in beer. And they both were like, let's order cider. And they kept saying to the waiter, you know, can we get two ciders? And the funny thing is, like, the waiter was like, look, we have, you know, in his head at least, he was like, we have, we have light beer and a dark beer. So they kept saying cider. And the waiter just kept saying light. And they kept saying, no cider. And he said, light. And eventually they realized that those were the options. It was sort of like, you know, in Blues Brothers, the the, the bar that plays uh, both kinds of music, country and Western. And um, so they nursed their beers. And then the menu was like pork, duck, pork and duck. There was one turkey dish. There was one vegetarian thing. And again, I think, anyway, the, the, the quality hadn't... Um, 
changed much in 30 years, but expectations had changed enormously. And um, they were very, these kids were very polite about not enjoying their food without telling me it. But um, uh, it was, it was still fun for me. So anyway, enough about my travel log. No one really cares where to go from here. Well, let's talk about the youth for a second, right? Um, so I keep hearing how um, the youth, sorry, I have college kids on my mind because I spent some time with college kids and also because I'm watching all of this horrible stuff on TV and um, particularly on college campuses. You hear this thing all the time about how, you know, so like young people in America and elsewhere are much more hostile to Israel. Um, and much more comfortable with, let's just say, anti-Semitic rhetoric. Um, I don't think they're all anti-Semites, but there is this, which I, and I wrote about this this week, there's this real problem that multicultural thinking has when it comes to Jews. You know, this whole settler colonialism theory stuff, which um, I don't have a huge amount of time for, um, at least not in this context. I think it's sort of interesting as an intellectual exercise to talk about it and to poke holes at it and to see where it stands up and where it doesn't. But there is this, broadly speaking, this idea that hating Israel or having problems with Jews everywhere because Jews support, tend to, it is presumed, even though there are a lot of Jews who are very hostile to Israel, um, both from the sort of crazy religious side um, and from the sort of secular, you know, code pink kind of side. But there's this general assumption that if you're Jewish, you support Israel. And if you support Israel, you're a monster and, or you're in favor of settler colonialism or whatever. And this, this presupposition gives sort of permission for kids of you know, for Muslim kids, kids of a Middle Eastern background, um, Arabic, you know, ethnically Arabic or whatever background, that it's just something that people like that do is dislike Israel um, or even dislike Jews who support Israel. And um, I'm not talking about this as being analytically true or objectively true or factually true. I mean, obviously, statistically more likely than not, there's, you know, there's some truth to it. My point is, is that it is seen as sort of being as, as a sign of cultural tolerance and acceptance to make allowances for people who say bigoted things about Jews and Israel in ways that you would never make exceptions for, for almost any other group. Right. I mean, it is, in a, it is unacceptable in your sort of typical, um, you know, campus pod left wing thing to say anything derogatory about black people, about gay people, about transgender people, about Hispanic people. But you can get away with saying stuff um, and sometimes even acting on it about Jews in part because it is it is a sign of solidarity with the authentic people of the region who, as part of their identity, allegedly or presumptively, don't like Jews. And so it's, it's this weird importation of a kind of intellectual bigotry or um, ethnic bigotry into the paradigm of identity politics, right? I mean, like identity politics says that, you know, makes allowances and, and, and so does 
just good manners, right? But like makes allowances for a Muslim kid to bow towards Mecca five times a day on campus or to wash their hands and feet before they go into a building or whatever. You know, there's all sorts of things that are part of, you know, uh, strict Islamic rights and, and, and tradition and, and rules that um, you make allowances for in the spirit of diversity, right? You make allowances for people to wear, for, for women to wear, to cover their heads or, or, or more um, according to the precepts of their version of Islam, whatever. Smuggled in with this, it seems to me, is this idea that it's okay for Palestinian kids or Middle Eastern kids or Muslim kids to say absolutely horrific things about Israel, about Jews, in ways that you would never be allowed to say, that a Jewish kid, never, or just a, any, any other, anyone else, would be allowed to say about, say, Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims. It reminds me, you know, I, I've written about it a billion times now, but you know, one of my favorite anecdotes in uh, British history is of, I think his name was Charles Napier, N-A-P-I-E-R, who was like a colonial military governor in India during the Raj. And um, when he was there, he was told that he could not outlaw um, wife burning or widow burning because there was a real tradition in India and a history of it in India. And Napier said, no, 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 I, I get it entirely that you have a rich tradition of doing this. It's just that in England, we have a rich tradition of hanging people who burn women alive. So, you know, let's do this. Let's just, you know, we'll, we'll put the gallows up side by side. But there's this tendency to think it's the sort of soft bigotry of low expectations that it's that because Palestinians or Arabs have real or alleged historical grievances that they are allowed to express ideas and insults and offenses in ways that other groups aren't because it's part of who they are, right? You know, it's like they wear a headscarf and they say bad things about Zionists. And, you know, who are we to sort of police one but not the other? Um, so that's just not police either. And I think that's one of the reasons why college campuses are having such a mess is that um, administrators and professors, um, even ones who haven't sort of drank the Kool-Aid on a lot of this pro-Hamas stuff or the colonial settlerism theories of this, that, or the other thing, they think that they are being culturally sensitive to people who hate Jews and that therefore it's required. And, you know, it may surprise you, I have problems with that. There are lots of traditions among various ethnic groups and religious groups that when confronted with a public space have to go bye-bye. It seems to me it is perfectly reasonable and never mind moral that this would be one of them. But it also sort of, it raises this, so like, like for instance, so like this thing I wrote in the G file, got a really great response to it. Um, I mean, I made a lot of different points in there, but one of them was, you know, this, this project, right? This sort of, project that, that, that Jonathan Haidt and, and uh, Greg Lukianov write about in The Coddling of American Mind, this, this thing about hyper-safetyism, about zero tolerance for discrimination, bigotry, bullying, all that kind of stuff, this hyper-obsessiveness with word policing, that that whole project has fallen apart in my eyes, and I think a lot of people's eyes, over the last month or so because of the way the campuses are utterly incapable of speaking with not just moral clarity, but just clarity with consistency. You cannot 
but there's no definition. There's no way you can consistently argue that, you know, this is a point I made on the dispatch podcast yesterday, but you know, it was like, you know, there are people who say you can't say master bedroom, right? Because master is a verboten word now. Um, can't say, you know, I remember when someone was, when it was proposed, this was years ago, but like, you know, we have to stop calling them seminars. We should call them ovulars and you can go across, you know, we've, we've, we've all remember all of these crazy sort of oppressive language lists and offensive language lists. And, you know, we can't say Dutch treat and all these kinds of things because it creates a hostile environment, you know, that general project, right. Is out the window now, right. You can't say, believe all women unless except for Jewish women where there is like monumental evidence that they were raped and abused. You can't, you know, you can't say that you can't use violent language, you know, violent imagery, you know, martial metaphors. Uh, one of these lists uh, I was looking at, you know, says you can't say take a stab at a project because stabbing is triggering and insensitive and, 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 and evo evocative of violence. But you can offer open apologies for the stabbing of Jews, right? It's funny, I found this one list of offensive language list, you know, things, because they're all over the place. And I think it was Colorado State. Um, I didn't get into it in the G file, but I thought it was interesting. I had never heard before that saying hip, hip, hooray was offensive. I kind of went down a rabbit hole on this. So Colorado State says that the reason why you can't say hip, hip, hooray is that allegedly Nazis, when they rounded up and killed Jews, would say, hip, hip, hooray. Okay, that's interesting, right? But this is, this is one of my problems with the language police stuff. Like, I didn't know that, right? I went to Road of Sholem Day School. I wrote, you know, a book about fascism. Um, I'm a kind of a word guy. Never heard this before. The idea that a normal person who says hip, hip, hooray means any offense when they say hip, hip, hooray is just so incredibly stupid. Um, moreover, the Nazis didn't coin hip, hip, hooray, right? I mean, hip, hip, hooray goes much further back. Um, I've never run into a Jew who thinks this is an offensive thing. I'm sure there is one because someone told these guys to write this down. But like, this is part of the problem with a lot of these word banning things is like, they go spelunking into the ancient history of various um, phrases or words to find something to be offended at that nobody knows about, right? So they're, they're more angry about the words etymologies or the phrases etymologies than they are about the phrase or words actual meaning in colloquial English. Um, you know, there are, it's like, this is, a, this is a controversy that will not die. This idea that rule of thumb is um, a sexist phrase because there was supposedly a law in, 18th or 19th century Britain that said um, that you couldn't hit a woman with anything thicker than the uh, width of your thumb. And it's just made up. It's just an urban legend. It's just not true. Um, and one of the lists I was looking at, the Brandeis one or the Stanford one, I can't remember, but one of them said you can't use the word because in effect, because some people have heard this urban legend and so they're going to assume that that's what you mean, which is obviously nonsense you know it's like no one means that no one means to give offense and you have to actually affirmatively want to take offense when you hear someone say you know as a rule of thumb i don't have more than two beers before you know six o'clock or whatever i mean it's just like um like no one's saying 
And that's why I beat women with a narrow stick, right? It's just so stupid. And, um, but I'm not the one coming up with these lists. And the people who come up with these lists and coming up with these rules, you know, about, you know, uh, sending people to sensitivity training and that perception is reality and all that. They're the ones who set these rules. They're the ones who've been imposing these rules on college campuses for years. They're the ones who have exported this nonsense into HR departments and a lot of universities. They've brought it into journalism. I mean, sometimes I think that it's the HR departments at places like the Associated Press that are making editorial decisions about what words can and can't be used. And so it kind of drives me crazy. crazy. I see all the time on TV um, or read about how, um, and oh, it's on, all over the place on Twitter, you know, people will say, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They say, you don't, you Luddites, you idiots, you, you know, you, you know, retrograde, you know, right-wing fools. That's not what we mean by from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. We mean there will be one multicultural democratic state where people will live in peace and harmony side by side and there will be rule of law and justice for everybody, not just for the Jews. And it's a wonderful secular liberal vision and blah, 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 blah. Maybe you're not full of crap and you actually believe that. Okay, that's great. Good for you. Like, uh, I'm not sure that vision is workable on the ground, but like, it doesn't offend me. Um, I think there's, a, I mean, personally, I think there's a good argument for allowing Israel to remain a Jewish state, but I don't think wanting some sort of pan, uh, ethnic, pan-religious political entity that incorporates sort of a different set of sort of liberal principles and democratic principles makes you a bad person or anti-Semitic if that's your preferred model. That's a totally, you know, like... I remember Bernard Lewis talking about how, you know, Jerusalem, they should make Jerusalem a free city, um, an international city. You know, um, Bernard Lewis was not anti-Semitic or anything like that. There are things you can do, right? There are different approaches. And I think a lot of Israelis would be perfectly fine with peace. So anyway, perfectly fine if that's your definition of uh, from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free. There are two problems with it. One you're in the minority. Well, there are three problems. One, you're in the minority. Two, the majority means something very different. Like it is still in Hamas's charter. Hamas is saying it to this day that all of the Jews will be killed or exiled from the area, right? They want to make the entire land that they call Palestine Judenfrei. Um, they want to purge and eliminate the Jews from the land. That's what they mean from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Um, and this attempt to whitewash what the people who are butchering, putting babies in ovens and, and raping people and murdering old ladies and taking families hostage, the idea to sort of whitewash or confuse what those people mean by the phrase by insulting and gaslighting people um, by saying, no, 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 it's a perfectly peaceful, nice phrase, is grotesque. It's morally and politically grotesque. Third, and this is the relevant point to um, this thing about what's going on in college campuses, is it shouldn't matter, right? I mean, I've been making, you know, like I've been making this argument for years about like, you know, no one knows what 
No one knows that has this definition of rule of thumb. No one is thinking about the master slave relationship when they talk about master bedroom or master hard drives or, you know, or slaved hard drives or anything like that. Um, these are things that people who are professionally empowered to take offense at things on behalf of other people who don't give a rat's ass come up with to give themselves power, right? It is a kind of a priesthood thing where we are going to be in charge of, of the use of language and we're going to create these sort of traps that if you don't use the right shibboleths, if you don't use the right phrases and code words, then that outs you as part of the out group and then we get to call you a bigot or whatever, right? That is the game that the language police have been playing forever. Um, I don't think it was the intent of everyone who came up with Latinx to use it that way to, as a sort of like, oh, you're not, you're not hip to the, you know, the in-group lingo if you uh, don't use Latinx. Um, I think it started as a dumb idea about degendering, degendering Spanish and being more inclusive towards women in, in academic literature, but it took on a life of its own as one of these sort of in-group shibboleth things. And there are people on these campuses who think they have to say Latinx when the average Latino in this country thinks it's a garbage word if they've heard of it at all. And they, a lot of them, a lot more Latinos and Hispanics take offense at Latinx than, no, than, 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 than prefer it. I mean, and this, the polling on this, as you know, I've talked about this a million times, is clear. But the whole, lang the whole logic of this hypersensitivity, language policing, safe space, coddling of, of the snowflakes stuff says that ignorance is not an excuse, right? If you, either you, you, an intent is not an excuse. You can't use this language if it causes anyone else to feel unsafe. If it can be interpreted offensive, it's offensive, right? Well, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is interpreted reasonably by a large swath of Jews and non-Jews, but you know, the Jews are kind of relevant in this context as a call for the extermination of Jews in Israel and an eradication of the, uh, the state of Israel, an interpretation that has merit that is in wide use. This is not hip, hip, hooray. How dare you, sir? Right? This is literally calling for the eradication of, a, it's, it's calling for genocide, right? It's calling for genocide, certainly cultural genocide, because they want to eradicate the thing that is Israel. And for a lot of people, it's literal genocide. And you have these kids saying it all the time and administrators saying it all the time and, and our administrators allowing it all the time. You have professors signing letters and petitions endorsing the idea it legitimately makes jews feel unsafe and, I, and again i don't mean unsafe in some sort of abstract let me figure out a way i can take offense to this and claim i'm a victim thing i mean like literally it makes them feel unsafe it feels like makes them feel like they have to lock themselves in the library at the cooper union right makes them feel like they have to run away from people um screaming at them because they don't know if they're going to get beaten up because they're wearing a yarmulke or something and and so I just don't think that that the that the, the this project that has been going on for a long time now has dealt itself an enormous blow because he can't, as I wrote, you can't have a carve out that says you can use violent and intimidating rhetoric about Jews, but nobody else. And it's not just that you can use violent and intimidating rhetoric about Jews um, and nobody else. 
is like for everybody else, you can't even use words that no one thinks are violent or intimidating, right? They just have to be able to fit some checklist or be interpreted in some tenuous way as being violent or, 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 or intimidating. But actual violence and intimidating and intimidation against Jews is just different, right? So like this is one of my long, long standing peeves is, uh, as you know, I've mellowed a bit on the generational stuff. I do think that there is more merit to Gene Twangy makes a good case about how what forms of sort of generational stereotyping have merit and which ones don't. And we've talked about that before. But I have not let go of my decades long contempt for what passes for youth politics, right? I've always thought that that the, the worship of young people, qua young people, the glorification of young people as young people was always ridiculous. And maybe it's because I was a Gen Xer. It was one of the defining attributes of the baby boomers. The baby boomers have this, um, because they're nostalgic for what they think was their own. And when I say baby boomers, I don't mean everybody in that cohort. I mean that the sort of cultural milieu of the people running universities when I was a kid, the people running, um, not when I was a kid, but when I was young, right? The people running the senior leadership and a lot of the media, a lot of the democratic politicians in the last 30 years, this sort of boomer mindset that looks back with great nostalgia um, on the 1960s and thinks the greatest and most laudable moral actors um, of that era were them uh, when they were teenagers, right? The sort of Howard Dean talking about how in the 1960s everything was so clear and wonderful and glorious because he was an arrogant teenager. This idea that young people have powerful moral insights that old people just don't understand. Um, I've never, ever had much sympathy for. Yeah, there is a thing about young people, you know, having this sort of emperor has no clothes kind of thing because they don't know much about the past. So they can see things with fresh eyes. That's valuable. Young people have fresh brains, which is important in some, and certainly in some technological fields. There are a lot of people in the sort of Silicon Valley high tech world that, you know, make a case that you just, you, you need a steady supply of, of very young, smart people because there's an elasticity with young brains, you know, so I mean, I'm, and look, it's better to be young than old, right? It's better to be, uh, good looking and thin than the opposite. All other things being equal. It's good to have energy, right? I mean, like there are a lot of advantages to being young, but being, uh, morally superior just isn't one of them. And yet there's this, this idea, I mean, it, it, goes, it goes way back before the boomers, but you know, there's this idea that's deep-seated in parts of the West that we should listen to the children, right? That the, you know, that the children have something important to tell us um, and that youthful passion is persuasive for some reason that I've never been able to tell. I remember uh, I had a lot of fun with it at the time, but in Hillary Clinton's It Takes a Village, she has this passage where she says, you know, some of the most brilliant theologians I've ever spoken to have been five-year-olds. And um, I think that's really stupid. <laughs> um, uh, 
I get, you know, I get the point that she's trying to make, which is, I think that she's trying to make, which is that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, wisdom from the mouths of babes, kind of like they don't know why things are the way they are. So they ask, you know, outside the box questions or they say things that are sweet and endearing and all that kind of stuff. But if you're getting your actual theological instruction from a five-year-old, I don't want to talk to you about theology. And so anyway, there's this, there's this deep-seated notion, this deep-seated deference to youthful passion as if it has a moral authority that is unearned. Um, I keep hearing people on TV saying how shocked they are that uh, there's so much more anti-Semitism insensitivity to Jewish concerns among young people. And their explanation is, well, it's because they're, they're, they're so distant from the Holocaust, right? I heard Caddy Kay saying that, I think, yesterday morning on Morning Joe, you know, and, and she, I mean, this is what put it in my head yesterday, because I was like, wow, I just keep hearing this. Um, I don't think it was original to her. I think it's one of these cliches that's bouncing around all over the place that, oh, that explains it. These kids have no cultural attachment to or living memory of the Holocaust. So they feel more liberated to say these things and, and have more sympathy for Palestinians than they do for Jews. Now, as an analytical matter, I don't think it's stupid, right? I don't think it's entirely wrong. I'm not sure how much actual explanatory power it has. I think there are other things going on. I think the settler colonialism BS probably explains more of it. Um, I think TikTok probably explains more of it. Um, I think the the growth in the size of the domestic Muslim and Middle Eastern population explains more of it. This is not an argument against people from the Middle East into the country or anything. I just, but obviously it creates a different sort of political mix, right? It just does, right? I mean, there's a reason why Rishuli Tlaib is has the constituency that she does, but. I got to say, as a moral argument or as an ex as an explanation, I think it's a very limited value, but some, right? I think it has some explanatory power. But as a excuse, right? This is one of big, my big things is the differences between explanations and excuses. As an excuse, it is just shitty. It is really, really dumb and bad. Like the idea that because you weren't, I mean, I wasn't alive during the Holocaust, right? I mean, again, I'm a little bit of an exception given my upbringing and whatnot, but like, like there are most people alive today weren't alive during the Holocaust. And most of the people who were alive during the Holocaust have vanishing little actual memory of it, right? Because, you know, um, they were probably kids. I mean, Joe Biden, I believe was born in, was it 48, 44, something like that, you know? So like, we're not talking about a world in which large numbers of people have actual memories, the Holocaust or the liberation of the camps or any of that kind of stuff. But regardless, you know, look, slavery was a really long time ago, longer ago than the Holocaust. And I never hear anybody say, well, you know, slavery was so long ago that therefore, you know, you know, some of these ideas, it's time to bring them back into wide circulation. Um, you shouldn't need to have a fresh memory of the Holocaust to take offense when murderers break into people's homes and shoot kids in front of their parents and parents in front of their kids. You shouldn't, you know, 
you shouldn't have to have been raised on never again to um, be horrified at paragliders sneaking into a country and slaughtering people, um, about, you know, a baby being put in an oven, about families being burned alive, kids being dismembered while still alive, if Anthony Blinken's testimony is correct. You know, this should not, it's kind of slanderous to say, but for the example of the Holocaust, all of these people would, even more people would be okay with the wanton torture and murder of civilian Jews just because they're Jews, right? I mean, it's like, like again, I, I, I get it as a matter of cultural analysis why, you know, it, it, it's a contributing factor. But like, let's not pretend that it excuses anything. And this just sort of gets to my, my, my broader point is that, you know, young people can be terrible people. Um, in fact, most murders are committed by young people. Most war crimes, the actual people doing the war criming are, are young people. Most crimes of passion are by young people. I'm not trying to demonize young people. I'm just trying to demystify the angelic presump the presumptions of angelicness about young people. As a statistical matter, it is an incredibly well-established finding in the social science literature that young people are more ignorant than old people. In fact, young people start out not knowing anything. We call them babies. And then over time, their state of almost total ignorance is remedied. That process isn't complete when they're 18 to 24-year-olds. Some of the worst, most horrific genocidal movements in human history, including Nazism, started out as essentially youth movements. Um, you know, the Italian fascists were essentially a youth movement. They bragged about being vibrant, young, blah, 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 blah. The Nazis were a youth movement. The kids, the people who took over those universities tended to be mobs of young people. Now, again, some of the best and most noble people out there are young people too. I'm just saying they're people. But this idea that somehow we need to defer to young people because they're young, because they have some sort of moral authority, it has always struck me as a kind of power worship. You know, that the, because the, the, the children are our future, right? They're going to be in charge one day because they have, they're fashionable and they're pretty, and they um, dominate, you know, pop culture and the conversation and old people are nostalgic for their own youth and they're envious of young people. And so therefore we should, you know, give them more respect and um, deference. Just never bought it. I think we should give them, you know, responsibility. We should give them opportunities. We should do all sorts of things for young people. But like this, you can feel the sort of angst on part of a lot of, um, uh, a lot of liberals out there when they see these polls, I mean, look, I feel angst too, but I, I suspect not entirely for the same reasons. They, there's this sense of like, oh crap, the moral center of our politics, young people are uh, embracing anti-Semitism and what does this mean? And let's come up with these explanations about distance from the Holocaust. No, it's that young people are susceptible to fads and bad ideas. In fact, because they are disproportionately ignorant and driven by passion and emotion, they are more susceptible to bad ideas than older people. But, you know, I'm not saying for a moment that older people can't be susceptible to 
bad ideas. You know, the, the core of Donald Trump's base is a bunch of old people who are letting the sort of nostalgia and, and, and boob bait, you know, cable news govern their thinking. Uh, I could probably, I know I can go on at much greater length about this, but uh, it just seems to me that, that the, the way we talk about young people um, gives them, first of all, it, I find it incredible. I, I, I want to be really clear. I've been making these arguments for 30 years. I was making these arguments when I was a young person. I always found the sort of treatment of young people as an identity politics group to be incredibly condescending and irrational because like at least if you're black or gay or missing some legs, I mean, I didn't come up with a whole bunch. There are a whole bunch of things about identity politics that really are, I think we overstress their importance, but like they are based on some immutable characteristics, right? You can't change your skin color. Um, you can't, you used to not be able to change your sex. Um, that's a conversation for another day, but you get it. Like there's some things that are sort of an e essential and indispensable component of, of who a group of people are. And again, I don't think, I don't like the kind of politics that says those components should define people because there's, um, it, it, it negates or, uh, minimizes human agency and the diversity of, uh, um, all sorts of groups, right? There are all sorts of, you know, not all black people are the same. And I always thought it was racist to say that they are. And so when you reduce all black people down to their skin color, you are, you know, erasing the individuality and the contributions and the dis different points of view of all sorts of black people. But at the same time, you can't escape the fact that, you know, there is a group of people that we would call black people because, you know, that that's a thing. It is definitely a thing that there are a bunch of people who are young, comparatively speaking. But the whole in, inherent in the idea of being young is that it is a temporary condition. And so when we sort of uh, treat it as if it's this immutable identity politics characteristic, right? This identitarian thing, we are directly denying what the actual, the essence of what the thing actually is. Youth is fleeting. But moreover, I just always thought it was condescending and stupid because like it, it, when I was growing up, right? When I was a young person, this is like the heyday of rock the vote and all of this garbage. Um, it was simply assumed that if you were young, you were a liberal or, or a leftist, right? It was just, and so like, we have to talk to the young people and let's, talk to the young people in these sort of cliched liberal terms. And I always found it just sort of insulting um, and, and, and condescending to like, just assume, you know, what my politics are, what my views are, because you happen to know uh, the year or the decade of my birth. Um, it was, I mean, I, I don't want to use like the word bigotry, but it was a kind of prejudice, right? It was a kind of lazy heuristic that just sort of said, Oh, tell me what year you were born. I can tell you who you are. It was basically secular astrology, right? It was like, it's, it's no more dumb to me. Like, again, as a statistical matter, if you want to tell me that you know that 85% of young people think this or that, and therefore you can make that assumption about an average young person as an analytical matter, that's fine. But if you're talking to me 
And you think because I was born in 1969 that therefore you know a lot about my personal views um, or you can sum up my personal experiences in ways that sort of suggest that you know me if you don't know anything else about me. I just always found it sort of off-putting and gross. Anyway, and so like I, I, I'm always amazed at how lasting this sort of impression is. And again, I should be clear. I think that the left has always had, because the left has always been more oriented towards action and direction than uh, the right, or at least the right as I grew up in it. Um, and so they've always had more of a thing about young people and youth and how great young people and youth is and all this kind of stuff. But it's definitely a problem on the right, too. It's definitely an American thing, you know, and you get all of these youngins coming up on the right who have this sort of, you know, first of all, there's this, you know, Charlie Kirk and those guys have gone a long way into leeching off of right wing oldster nostalgia for youth and these cliches about how children are the future um, for their own personal enrichment. But there's also just this sort of, this is something that's ingrained in American culture to a certain extent. Um, but then you get these sort of young strivers, overambitious kids who insist that the Reagan consensus or the, you know, the, or fusionism or all these things have outlived their utility when really what they um, are arguing for is that they don't want to pay their dues climbing the ladder through the old system. They want to start on top as the head of some new thing. And that's a very youthful thing that exists, you know, across ide across the ideological spectrum on college campuses. I've seen it for years. Oh, so like, I, I haven't read it yet. I heard a lot about it. We talked a bit about, just this, this point reminds me, talked about it a bit on the Dispatch podcast yesterday where um, Jamie Weinstein joined us. He's going to be our new um, Dispatch podcast interview guy. I think he's going to be great. So this thing about advisors around Trump want a different kind of lawyer around Trump. Should Trump get reelected? They want lawyers who know what time it is, which, you know, is this really juvenile, dumb, you know, I, when I hear people talk about, you know, this thing like Kevin Roberts at the Heritage Foundation and all of these sort of weird Claremont orbit guys, American greatness types, right? know what time it is, is this code understanding that we are in on the precipice of an existential crisis um, where the left is going to take over and, 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 you know, kill us all or do terrible things or, or, or drink our milkshakes or whatever. And so it's this nodding way of speaking, you know, in sort of open code about how we need people who are willing to sort of go right-wing Alinsky and break the rules and bend the rules and ignore the rules, um, do whatever it takes for power and victory. John Eastman knows what time it is, that kind of thing, right? And I think it's juvenile high school BS. Um, I'm not saying that we aren't in an important time, and I'm not saying that the stakes aren't high, but these clowns aren't the answer to any of those problems. And so, I mean, I often, when I hear these people saying, we need people who know what time it is, I basically hear hail Hydra, right? It is, it is one of these in-group shibboleths that designates the sort of ultra-maga nationalist pants-wedding Flight 93 types from conventional conservatives. And so anyway, there's this, this thing, at least according to the excerpts I saw, that around the Trump people, they want lawyers who know what time it is. And the problem is, is that the Federalist Society is too tired, too cautious. 
it prevented Trump from doing all sorts of things that he wanted to do. And so they want a different kind of lawyer who will uh, swing for the fences and let the courts shut everything down. And it was interesting, Sarah, who subscribes very much to sort of this, this idea that I've been pushing for a while now, you know, the, which Abe Greenwald as, as as well, which is that the there's a part of the right that likes to lose, right? There's a part of the right that thinks losing is proof of purity, that losing is proof that you haven't compromised with the deep state or the establishment or the rhinos or the Biden crime family. Because if you actually win, if you actually make progress, it proves that the system isn't rigged. If you make, if you compromise, it proves that your opponents aren't an existential enemy poised to kill you, but actually people that you can work something out with, right? The whole idea of of incremental progress undermines all of the Flight 93 garbage. Um, and I think this mindset is all over the place. And Sarah is the one who, on the Dispatch podcast yesterday, was saying how it's it's part of what's driving this desire to get non-traditional conservative lawyers um, on the team so that Trump can do more and be more ambitious and let the courts take the blame if... Uh, he can't get away with things. And I think, so I, obviously, I think Sarah is right to a significant degree about this. But Steve, you know, are you, yeah, maybe that's part of it, but it's also maybe that they just want lawyers who will say yes to whatever Trump does so that Trump can get away with it because Trump really wants to do some crazy things that are unconstitutional. And I think there's probably some truth to that as well. And Anyway, I've been thinking about it. I got to go read the full piece. There's also the thing that, you know, uh, Jamie and I both talked about, which is that, which is related to Sarah, the, the losing thing, is that, you know, Trump has this long history of basically just wanting the talking point from his lawyers or from the Justice Department, right? He wants to be able to make the claim that something bad is happening. He doesn't actually care if the claim is true, right? So like the Zelensky thing from the, from the first impeachment was he just wanted the Ukrainian government to say that there was some corruption going on or that there's an investigation and then Trump will take care of the rest. He wanted Bill Barr and the Justice Department to say there was fraud or that fraud is being investigated and then he would take care of the rest, right? He just needed the, the hook for the news peg to make it seem like a plausible narrative. What was sort of interesting is, is like, and this is the point getting back to Sarah's, is that the conservative lawyers in the Trump administration were the ones who actually figured out how to get things done, right? They're the ones who figured out how to come up with a kind of Muslim ban thing. I'm not endorsing it or anything, but like that would get past a judge, because the original versions of it were so so stupid. I mean, Trump's original proposal would have barred U.S. citizen Muslim U.S. citizens, including Muslim U.S. service members, from re-entering the country, which is obviously unconstitutional. You know, you go down a long list. It's like, and so this is one of these interesting things. Is like a lot of people view lawyers. I mean, I remember Marion Glendon gave this great talk at AEI, you know, when I was a kid there thirty years ago, about how lawyers should be seen as problem solvers, not problem creators, and that they are supposed to look for solutions, right, to complex problems. And Trump's lawyers were pretty good at 
keeping Trump out of trouble and keeping him from losing all sorts of fights. And so it's just interesting when you think about that's not the mindset that these people have now. It is not to actually accomplish policy. It is to have the issue, right? If, if, if these reports are right, right, which I think they probably are. It's not like there was a huge amount of pushback since the Times had this thing. One, this is one of the things that, you know, really concerns me about a Trump presidency is the, this approach would be really good for demagoguing, right? Um, Trump loves, loves to say all of the, all of our problems would be so easy to fix if he was just allowed to do whatever he wants, right? I could do it in 24 hours. I could get peace between Ukraine and Russia in 24 hours. This never would have happened if I was president, if, if I was president about Israel or North Korea or whatever it is, right? He went around saying how healthcare would be so easy to fix, right? And I can see how like this approach of having lawyers who will just let all the stuff reach the courts um, and get blown up would be really good for a, a demagogue, you know, autocrat wannabe, right? Because then you get to say, you know, look, we have all the solutions, but these damn courts, they're stabbing us in the back. They're holding us back. Maybe we should suspend the rule of law to fix our problems. And before you think I'm being like paranoid or, or whatever, it's a rich American history of these arguments coming around, right? I mean, this is, you know, I know people roll their eyes um, without having ever read the book, but, you know, um, it was a big part of, you know, what I was talking about during the New Deal and in my first book, Liberal Fascism, you know, at the Democratic Convention in 32, I guess, right? The dates were different back then. Anyway, his first Democratic Convention, uh, Hugh... Uh, you have to be really careful when you say this guy's name. Otherwise, um, it becomes like a prank call thing. But his name was Hugh Johnson. Um, he was the general who ran the draft during World War One. He was the Times Man of the Year in 19, I want to say, 34. Um, because FDR was th in 33. He was the head of the National Recovery Administration. And he was in many ways, as fascistic a, a, a major government official as we've ever had in this country. Everything was about martial rhetoric. Everything was about you're either a traitor or you're a, um, a friend. He wanted to mili literally, literally militarize major industry in this country. He Under the NRA, we went a long way towards doing that, where we created industrial armies. One of the biggest parades in American history was the um, parade in New York City under the banner of the Blue Eagle, which was the symbol of the National Recovery Administration, um, where pe everybody of a different uh, industry wore a different uniform and they did a military-style parade um, past FDR. Um, anyway, Hugh Johnson, uh, uh, whose nickname was Iron Pants, uh, he he handed out a memo, at the, that circulated a memo at the um, Democratic Convention arguing for sending Congress and the Supreme Court's uh, Supreme Court to an island in exile for nine, an Elba, as it were, for 90 days so that FDR could get everything taken care of without any interference, right? This was sort of the plot of, of Gabriel over the White House, uh, um, a, a, a horrible movie that was, uh, that FDR actually did show notes on, uh, had, had script notes on, um, that envisioned a president of the United States becoming a dictator after getting a visit from the angel Gabriel. This is, you know, this idea of, of 
getting the law and the Constitution out of the way is at the heart of a lot of Tom Freeman's BS from, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago now about how we should be China for a day. I remember Jesse Waters talking about in 2016 or 2017, um, I guess it was 2017 or 2018, talking about how a lot of people say that we should just make Trump dictator for a little while so he can really fix all these problems. There's always been this strain in American politics on the left and on the right um, that gets really exhausted with the rule of law, with process, with procedural liberalism, with uh, the rules, um, and says we should just fix things. And there are times when I think this is a really laudatory thing in American political culture. Um, it's one of the things that got us up and running to win World War II. But for the most part, uh, I, you know, uh, I like the rules. I like the rule of law. I think that if a judge says he can't do something, you shouldn't be able to do it. doesn't mean the judges are always right. doesn't mean that we don't take some of this, these, this you know, ridiculous stuff um, too far. Um, certainly I am for parsing back all sorts of regulations and red tape and all sorts of areas of life. I think it should be easier to form businesses. I think it should be easier to do all sorts of things, but at the level of sort of narrative formation in our politics, there've always been people, you know, certainly Woodrow Wilson was one of them. FDR was one of them who had real contempt for anything that stood in their way. The, peop the politicians and the movements that make these connections with a big mass audience, you know, which is all we have right now are populism. I mean, like the, the Biden administration, it's stuff about student loans and rent moratoriums is lawless, right? I mean, it's, it's boring because it's Joe Biden and um, he doesn't use the language of a demagogue, but he, you know, they explicitly ignore the law. Um, and have contempt for, you know, the court packing stuff on the left. This is an American problem. And if Trump gets reelected and he gets these, you know, ridiculous hack OAN lawyers, um, you know, Newsmax lawyers on there who will just say yes to whatever he does or wants to do, um, it's going to create a situation where I'm not saying he's going to become a dictator overnight or anything like that, but we're going to get it's going to create the natural logic of attacking the courts as an impediment to all of the solutions that we have. And I, I frankly, I think if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders were president, we would see a similar problem. Um, but I think it'd be worse under under Trump for all the obvious reasons, in part because Trump's a moron. Anyway, I just it's something I've been thinking about. I think it's it's something to take more seriously than you know a one day story usually is. All right. So that's about it. Um, if you have any, uh, sorry, I'm just feeling under, under the weather. Um, if you have, um, questions for our AMA, um, which we'll probably record sometime next week, uh, just send them to the remnant at the dispatch.com. And, um, we'll try to get to as many of them as possible. Uh, if you want to listen to it, you're going to have to sign up and become a subscriber to the dispatch. Because they're only going to be, the AMAs are only going to be on the Skiff, which is our new members only podcast feed. And please subscribe if you can, just in general. If you think what we're doing here is important or worthwhile, if you get value out of it um, from the free stuff, you'll get more from the paid stuff. And you also get just that, you know, that level of 
satisfaction that you're helping good people try to do good things. On that, I'll see you next time.